Chapter Three of Anglo-American Memories by George Washburn Smalley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three: Yale Professors, Harvard Law School. The three Yale professors whose names, after all these years, stand out most clearly to me are Thatcher, Hadley, and Porter. Professor Thatcher taught Latin. They used to say he knew Tacitus by heart perhaps only a boyish emphasis upon his knowledge of the language and literature he was at any rate a good latinist and a good teacher what was perhaps more rare he was a genial companion to whom the distance between professor and pupil was not impassable he won our sympathies because he gave us his and our admiration and almost our affection went with our sympathies he was one of the few college dignitaries upon whom the student feels himself privileged to look back as a friend for on his side the spirit of friendly kindness governed the relations between us of professor hadley's hellenism we expressed our admiration by saying he dreamed in greek to us so long as we were in his hands greek was the language of the gods the modern heresies touching the place of greek in a liberal education had at that time not been heard of or had taken no hold upon the minds of either teacher or pupil we learnt greek so far as we learnt it in the same unquestioning spirit as we read the bible so far as we read it hadley taught us something more than grammar and prosody he taught us to look at the world through greek eyes and to think greek thoughts to him the greek language and literature were not dead but alive and he sought to make them live again in his pupils i don't say that he always succeeded or often at least we perceived his aim and we listened with delight to the roll of homer's hexameters from his flexible lips for the time being he was a greek to this illusion his dark eyes and olive skin and the soft full tones of his voice contributed some of his enthusiasms if not much of his learning imparted themselves to us if we presently forgot what we learned the influence remained i do not ask said saint beuve that a man shall know latin or greek all i ask is that he shall have known it a sentence in which there is a whole philosophy of education a philosophy which the universities that have abolished greek out of their compulsory courses forgot to take into account professor porter's mission was to implant in our young minds some conception of moral philosophy and of rhetoric he taught persuasively sometimes eloquently and always with a clearness of thought and purpose which made him intelligible to the dullest and instructive he had another means of appeal to his students he was human and sympathetic we looked upon our professors as for the most part beings far removed from us exalted by their position and virtues above us and above mankind in general a sort of demigods who had descended to earth for the good of its inhabitants to whom however they were not of kin we never thought that of professor porter he had a magical smile it was the magic of kindness we fancied that the faculty dealt with the students in a spirit of strict justice from their point of view if not always from ours they were a high court of justice which laid down the law and enforced penalties out of proportion to the offence it was law and the administration of it was inexorable 
not so porter he was never a hanging judge i know it because i owed to him the privilege of remaining at yale to the end of my four years i have quite forgotten what crime i committed but it was one for which according to the strict code by which the undergraduates were governed expulsion was the proper sentence or perhaps only suspension which in my case would have meant the same thing but professor porter intervened there were mitigating circumstances these he pressed upon his colleagues and i believe he even made himself answerable for my good behaviour thereafter i stayed on and if i did not profit as i ought to have profited by the opportunity i owed to him i was at least grateful to him and still am professor porter became later president of yale one on the roll of chief magistrates of the university to whom not yale only but the country is and for two hundred years has been indebted he ruled wisely fine administrative qualities reinforcing his scholarly distinction he was beloved and his name is forever a part of the history of this great college looking back on those days and on the professors i have known since at yale harvard columbia and one or two other american universities one thing impresses me beyond all others it is the spirit of devotion in those men of devotion to learning to letters to their colleges and to their country many of them were and many in these days are men who had before them other and far more profitable careers they might have won much wider fame and made a great deal more money they have been content with the appreciation of their own world and with salaries which i believe never exceed six thousand dollars and are commonly much less when english critics albeit in a friendly spirit have commented in private not in public on the american love of money-making i have made this answer pointing to the absolute unselfishness of one of the highest type of american citizen all over the land and to their conception of what is best in american life i have always added that though others may speak of their renunciation as a sacrifice they never do so far as i know them they are content and more than content they rejoice in their work and in the modest circumstances which alone their income permits now and then we hear of some brilliant scholar as having refused a lucrative post in order to go on teaching and studying there are many more whom we never hear of publicly to all of whom the country owes a debt of gratitude if nothing else which it does not always pay but here in england if you state the facts you will find them accepted and welcomed as the best answer to the reproach of money ambitions a reproach based on conspicuous exceptions to the general american rule of thrift and simplicity after graduating at yale and after a year in mr hoare's office at worcester i went to the harvard law school harvard was as much a unitarian university as ever but perhaps it was considered that law was a safeguard against loose theology or perhaps the old reasons were no longer omnipotent i attempt no comparisons between yale and harvard there is no kind of likeness between undergraduates and postgraduate life during four years at yale the discipline had been rigid at the law school in cambridge i cannot remember that we were under any restraint whatever 
in new haven we lived either in the college dormitories or in houses approved by the faculty and i am not sure that in my time we did not all sleep within the college limits insanitary and uncomfortable as many of the buildings then were but the law student in cambridge lived where he would and as he would he went to chapel or not weekdays and sundays alike to suit himself not even attendance at the law lectures was compulsory it seems to have been held that students had come to the school upon serious business and that their own interest and the success of their future careers would be enough to ensure their presence it was not always so the very freedom which ought to have put men on their honor sometimes became a temptation and boston was a temptation as it was and must always be to undergraduates and graduates alike the years were drawing on it was now eighteen fifty four and the sectional antagonism of which there had been evidence enough at yale was increasing we were older and the crisis was nearer there was a kind of law school parliament in which all things were put to the issue of debate and the air often grew hot angry words were exchanged between southerners and northerners the rooted belief of the southerner or of many southerners that they had a monopoly of courage was sometimes expressed more than once challenges were talked of though i believe none was actually sent there was a choleric young gentleman from missouri who put himself forward as champion of slavery and there was an attempt to deny to us of the north the right to express our opinions on our own soil which did not succeed the missourian was the exception of the southerners in general at harvard i should say what i have said of those at yale if they felt themselves of a superior race they accepted the obligations of superiority and treated their inferiors with an amiable condescension for which we were not always grateful these were not matters of which the authorities of dane law school took notice their business was to teach law judge parker was a real lawyer who afterwards revised the general statutes of massachusetts into something like coherence and the symmetry of a code he handled the law in a scientific spirit without emphasis not without dry humor and had ever a luminous method of exposition which grew more luminous as the subjects grew more abstruse his colleague mr theophilus parsons was i think what is called a case lawyer to whom the chose juge was as sacred as it was more recently to the anti-dreyfusards there are always and i suppose always will be lawyers to whom decisions are more than principles parsons was one of these while parker's aim was to present to the student the whole body of law as a homogeneous whole organic capable of abstract treatment capable of being set forth in the dry light of reason whether it was the difference in the men or in their methods i know not but there can be no doubt that judge parker's lectures were better attended and more devoutly listened to by the students and that his system bore fruit for it created a habit of mind and under his teaching a legal mind was formed and became a better instrument for use at the bar 
the bar of massachusetts was at that time in a period of splendor as it had been for generations webster was gone and there was no second webster he was the leader not only of the massachusetts bar but of the american bar but rufus Choate was still in his prime whose eccentricities of manner and of speech could not disguise forensic abilities of almost the first order sidney bartlett his rival was as sound as Choate was showy but Choate also was sound though he had a spirit of adventure which carried him too far and a rhetoric not seldom flamboyant some of his phrases are historical as of a witness who sought to palliate his dishonesty by declaring that he never disclosed his iniquitous scheme a soliloquy of fraud retorted Choate. i heard one of his brethren at the bar say to him as he came into court i suppose you will give us a great sensation to-day mr Choate." no answered Choate. it is too great a case for sensation and he tried it all day with sedateness chief justice shaw disliked him or disliked his methods and sometimes showed his dislike overruling him rather roughly the great judge was not an apollo and there came a day when mr Choate, smarting under judicial censure remarked in an audible aside to his associate counsel the chief justice suggests to me an indian idol we feel that he is great and we see that he is ugly but amenities like that were unusual general butler afterward too famous at new orleans and fort fisher yet after that the democratic governor of whig massachusetts had a none too savory renown at the bar yet it was said of him by an opponent if you try your case fairly butler will try his side of it fairly but if you play tricks he will play more tricks than you can his sense of humor was his own sometimes effective and sometimes not defending a railway against an action by a farmer whose wagon had been run over by a train and who alleged that the lookout sign was not as required by law in letters five inches long butler made him admit he had not looked at the sign then said butler to the jury it could not have availed had the sign been in letters of living light five inches long the best contrast to butler was richard h dana as good a lawyer or better and with the best traditions of a high-minded bar pursued in the best spirit but i will leave dana till i come to the burns case End of chapter three